Hey guys, I'm dropping one more episode for you here from my new podcast, It Ends in Idaho. Over there, I'm covering the trial of Lori Daybell, and I've been attending this trial almost daily. This is the last episode from that podcast that I'm sharing here, so if you want to catch more episodes and hear about the rest of the trial, please follow along at It Ends in Idaho. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to press the plus button or the follow button and do me a huge favor. Head on over there and give me a five-star rating on that show to help us boost it. Our regular episode for True Crime Exposed will be out this weekend, and it's a special one. I worked with a victim's daughter on this case, and she is seeking justice for her mom. It Ends in Idaho is a podcast following the trial of Lori Vallow Daybell. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Kayla Waters, in correlation with my other podcast, True Crime Exposed. I have followed this case closely as it all came to an end here in Idaho, just 30 minutes north of where I grew up and currently live. I will be attending most days of Lori Daybell's trial at the Madison County Courthouse in Rexburg, Idaho. This is the area which the crimes took place, and this is the only location outside of Ada County that has access to the live stream of this trial. Each day, I will recap the trial for you here. Welcome to It Ends in Idaho, the Lori Daybell Trial. It's still day one in the trial of Lori Noreen Daybell. Opening statements had thrown out tidbits of new information to those of us anxiously watching the proceedings. I want to point out, what I am calling day one has been reported on and is referred to in court as day six, because for five days before opening statements, there was jury selection. I didn't watch jury selection, nor did I really have the interest to. For me, this trial began with opening statements. Now the prosecution will present their case first. The order of things after opening statements is that the prosecution will present their entire case. They'll call all their witnesses. The defense is able to cross-examine each witness if they choose to do so, but they won't present their defense until the prosecution rests their case. At that time, they'll be able to call their own witnesses. The prosecution will also be able to call rebuttal witnesses once the defense rests, and in the end, they'll both end with closing arguments before the case is handed over to the jury for deliberation. The first witness that the prosecution calls is Kay Woodcock. My heart jumps. I'm interested to hear from her, and I'm also heartbroken that she has to be here testifying against the woman she trusted to adopt her biological grandson. I met Kay in person at Oxygen's CrimeCon in Las Vegas back in October of 2022. During her presentation alongside her husband Larry Woodcock and local Idaho Falls reporter Nate Eaton of East Idaho News, I stood to ask her a question. I asked if she believed Lori's ex-husband, Joe Ryan, was killed by Lori. He was said to have died by natural causes, but everything in this case, including her statements following his death and the fact that Lori was the beneficiary of his life insurance, led me to believe something nefarious went on. Kay responded to me with a slight chuckle, and she said, Hell yeah, I believe she killed him. Kay and Larry also told the audience that they were holding out hope Lori would receive the death penalty. Unfortunately, this wish would not come true for them as Judge Boyce removed the possibility of a death sentence before the trial even began. He stated that he wanted to ensure a fair trial for Lori. During that same CrimeCon conference, Larry had talked about this special bond he had with JJ. Being a drug-addicted baby made things hard. Sometimes JJ was inconsolable. The only thing that would calm him down was when Larry would remove both of their shirts and hold the baby skin to skin. The loss of JJ was devastating to his grandparents, known to him as Mama and Papa. The prosecution starts off by asking Kay if she had any children who were unable to care for their own children. She will answer yes, it's her son Todd. Todd and his girlfriend had issues, said Kay. 
She got pregnant, they couldn't care for him, and the baby was born with drugs in his system. She's asked when this child was born. The date was May 25th, 2012. The baby's name was Kanan, who would later be known as J.J. Vallow. Kay later states that she refers to J.J. as Kanan during the time her and Larry cared for him, and J.J. after the time he is adopted. So Kanan was born at 30 weeks, 10 weeks premature. He had multiple drugs in his system, and he spent six to seven weeks in the neonatal intensive care unit. He came home from the hospital to Kay and Larry's home because the state had taken custody of him when he was born due to the drugs in his system. Kay and Larry were deemed caregivers until they could give Kanan back to Todd and his girlfriend, Mandy. However, they never regained custody. Larry and Kay would keep the baby from July of 2012 until mid-February of 2013, when he is adopted by Charles and Lori Vallow. Kay is asked who Charles is, and Charles is her brother. His wife is Lori. Kay is then asked if Lori Vallow is in the courtroom today. She responds with a yes before being asked to point where she's sitting and describe what she's wearing. Quote, she's sitting there and I guess in a black jacket. The prosecution makes a verbal notification to the court that the defendant has been identified. Now the questioning continues. Why did they take Kanan? Kay says that they were granted legal custody. Remember, the defense stated in their opening statement that Kay Woodcock asked her brother Charles to take her grandson. Well, the prosecution asks, so did you ask Lori and Charles to take custody? Kay replies with, quote, no, actually, Charles and Lori approached us. Larry and I were going to be given the option to adopt him first. Then Charles and Lori approached saying they would love to adopt him. Charles talked genuine about it because it was a sensitive subject. I told Charles that we had to think about it because it was a big decision. Kay ultimately allows them to adopt Kanan because they wanted to have a child of their own. They also had a different lifestyle than Kay and Larry. She says that all they did was work and go home, while Charles and Lori had a busy lifestyle, and they both played an active role in the community. Lori seems like a kind mom. Kay said, the mom everyone wants to be. With that, Kanan was moved from Lake Charles, Louisiana to Chandler, Arizona. This is when his name was changed to Joshua Jackson Vallow. Kay goes on to testify that her and Larry maintained a relationship with their grandson, as that was a stipulation of the adoption. They flew out less than a month after the adoption because they were having a hard time adjusting, and they missed him very much. They were then able to visit JJ about every three months while the family lived in Arizona. Once Charles and Lori moved to Hawaii, it was obviously harder to travel then. Kay would go about every six months and stay for a week or so sometimes with Larry and sometimes on her own. Charles, Lori, Tylee, and JJ had moved to Princeville on the island of Kauai. When asked if she had digital contact with JJ, Kay testifies that she did. He would often call or FaceTime them. She also testifies that her relationship with Lori and Charles was great at this time. She was close with her brother, and although she didn't have a lot of phone conversations with Lori, when they came together in person, they would catch up right where they had left off. They were close, too. Kay also says that she did spend time with Lori's other children, Colby Ryan and Tylee Ryan. They were involved in birthday parties and holiday celebrations. Kay even met Lori's parents and her brothers, Alex and Adam Cox. She's asked if she knows when Alex died. She says yes, on December 12, 2019. Kay is asked what she witnessed about Lori and JJ's relationship. Quote, she was doting. Kay goes on to explain an album that Lori kept filled with pictures of family members. Lori always reinforced to JJ that Kay and Larry were mama and papa. Quote, she was a good mother. Kay also testifies that Charles was a great father. Whenever he was home from his business trips, he would have JJ all the time. Then Kay is asked about the first time she saw JJ in 2019. She says that Charles had reached out to her and he let her know that he was splitting up with Lori. He was distraught, so Kay came to Chandler, Arizona for two weeks to help with JJ. 
from the defense table, an objection is thrown out, stating that this testimony is hearsay. The prosecution states that they have not heard any hearsay yet. Judge Boyce agrees with the prosecution, and the objection is overruled. So questioning continues. During the time that Kay was helping Charles, they were not aware of where Lori was. Kay actually ends up taking JJ back to Louisiana for a week while some of the details get worked out. In February and March of 2019, Kay and Larry are very involved with JJ. They're traveling back and forth to help Charles. By March 31st, 2019, Charles had moved to Houston, Texas, and he brought JJ with him. Back in Arizona, Charles had no family besides Lori's family. His family was in Louisiana, but there were no special needs schools there for JJ, so he settles in Houston, just 150 miles away from Lake Charles, Louisiana. This way, Kay could make the drive out easily when Charles would leave for business trips. Just after this move, Kay had stayed in Houston with JJ for three days. She testifies that Charles worked as a financial planner, and by February of 2019, she did become involved in helping with his business. This is because he was distraught about his separation to Lori, and Kay was familiar with owning her own business. Charles needed help with payroll and other tasks like that. Kay is asked if anything happened in April that changed the situation she had worked out with Charles. And she answers yes, because in April of 2019, Lori moved to Houston to try and work things out with Charles. Kay still saw JJ often. He would come over at least every other weekend. It seemed to Kay that Lori was mostly staying in Phoenix. She was unaware of Lori's exact travels, but Charles would often tell Kay that Lori was gone for the weekend. By June of 2019, Charles secured Lori a home back in Chandler, Arizona, a suburb of Phoenix. The couple had separated again. Charles continued living in Houston, and when he traveled to Arizona, he would get a hotel. Kay testifies that Charles was intending to divorce Lori, but he was never able to finalize that. This is when she is asked about Charles's life insurance policy. She says in February of 2019, Charles had approached her, asking if he could name her as the beneficiary of his life insurance so that he could remove Lori. She says that she did not ask him to name her as the beneficiary. Kay promised him that if she were ever to receive this life insurance in the result of his death, she would use the money to continue raising JJ. She also committed to give half of the money to his two adult sons, which she did following his death. The first time I had ever heard about this case was actually through text messages between Lori and Charles's two sons, considered as Lori's stepsons at that time. Following the death of Charles, Lori hadn't notified his sons until the next day, and she only sent them a text message. They kept trying to get a hold of Lori, but she was being very evasive, so they became frustrated with her, and this text stream ensues. Their mother, Charles's ex-wife, ended up posting the screenshots of these messages on Facebook, and they went viral because they were very strange. What's ironic is I saw these way back then long before the name Lori Vallow was ever infamous. I remember reading through them and thinking to myself, whoa, those are weird text messages. That lady definitely murdered her husband. I didn't realize then that this would become one of the biggest modern day murder cases. But here we are now. Kay is asked by the prosecution if Lori ever asked her about this life insurance policy, and Kay answers yes. Lori sent her a text. The prosecution asks her if she remembers which number Lori contacted her from, but Kay does not remember, because she had two numbers saved for Lori in her phone and she didn't know them off the top of her head. She's asked if she looked at the numbers, would she be able to recall which one the text was sent from? Kay replies, yes. She had a document prepared to look at, and she reads the numbers out loud. The prosecution then moves on, asking Kay if she remembers the last time she saw J.J. Vallow in person. She said it was the weekend of May 17, 2019, in Lake Charles, Louisiana. They were holding a birthday party for J.J. at a pizza place in town. 
JJ spent the weekend there with his grandparents and left to Houston that Sunday afternoon. Then Kay is asked if she had any contact with JJ following the death of Charles Vallow on July 11, 2019. She states that she talked with him three times via FaceTime. The first time was about a week after Charles died. This would have been around July 20th, and the FaceTime was abnormal. She says that JJ normally walked around with an iPad or a phone, and he would always be holding the device himself so they could barely see him. Instead, they were looking at the ceiling. And we all know how that goes, right? If you FaceTimed with a young child, usually you can see maybe their eyes, the top of their forehead, and the ceiling. This was the norm for Kay and Larry's FaceTimes with JJ. But this time, JJ was not holding the device himself. Someone was holding it for him. The phone call lasted only 30 to 45 seconds. On a later date in the evening time, JJ would FaceTime Kay for a second time since his father's death. Again, he was not holding the device. He was tired, so he was in a foul mood, and Kay was upset that Lori had waited to call until he was so tired. This call lasts less than a minute. The last FaceTime and the last time Kay would ever see or hear from JJ was on August 10, 2019. This was a 35-second FaceTime. Again, JJ was not holding the device himself. He said, hi, mama, hi, papa, and then he looked up at the person holding the device before he said, gotta go, mama, gotta go, papa, bye. Following this interaction, Kay and Larry did attempt to call, email, and text JJ through Lori, but Kay never receives a response. Then the prosecution asks Kay if she ever arranged with Lori for JJ to attend memorial services held for Charles in Lake Charles, Louisiana. Kay can't remember if she called or texted Lori, but she testifies that there was a plan made between them, and Lori agreed that JJ could come. Kay had purchased plane tickets. She was set to fly out and pick JJ up, and then she would fly back and drop JJ off. However, Lori ends up refusing to allow JJ to go, and she doesn't answer Kay. Lori was also not at her husband's memorial service. At this time, the prosecution informs the judge that the bailiff will hand the defense a document. Once they look over it, they object this document. The judge decides to call a recess for lunch, and he will decide on the objection once court is back in session. All of us at the Madison County Courthouse stand up out of the old wooden court benches. Our backs are aching because those benches are pretty awful to sit in all day. The live stream is turned off, and we all head out of the building for lunch. The lunch is supposed to last 45 minutes, but we aren't let back into the courtroom until about 10 minutes past return time. The court session in Ada County was behind on time, just like they had been that morning. This is sort of just how court goes. Once the live stream starts back up and we're settled back into our spots, the judge starts by asking Kay about those papers she was looking at earlier that contained the phone number for Lori Vallow. Where did she get them? Kay says that she took screenshots from her phone, and then she's asked if she printed them herself. She says no, she actually emailed them to the prosecution, and they printed these papers. Then it said, quote, so you've been in contact with the prosecution. She says yes, dating back to January of 2020. She's then asked how often she has talked with them. At this point, the prosecution objects the questioning, and the defense also objects, referencing Law 16b-6. They say that the prosecution had to notify the court of all contact with witnesses, and they say the prosecution did not notify about all of their contact with Kay. The prosecution then reads the rule, and they say that they were only required to present information about witness statements to police. The judge sides with the prosecution and overrules the defense's objection. At this point, Kay is asked to look at JJ's birth certificate and read it out loud. Then she looks at the final decree of adoption signed on July 25, 2014. She reads this out loud as well. Then she looks at a photograph of JJ. She's asked if she took this photo. Kay starts to cry. 
She answers that she did take this photo. She took this when JJ was maybe five or six. She can't remember exactly when because she says they took a lot of pictures of JJ. It was taken when he was sitting in the back of Larry's pickup truck in St. Charles, Louisiana. All of the documents and this picture were shown to the jury and the courtroom, displayed onto the projector screen for us there in Madison County. JJ appeared in our live stream to be wearing a white t-shirt, but it turns out it was actually a lime green t-shirt. His seatbelt is laying across his chest and it's buckled. He is smiling. Kay is then asked if she became concerned about JJ's whereabouts after the death of her brother, Charles. She says yes, because Lori didn't want JJ anymore, and she wasn't allowing Kay to keep in contact with him. The first time Kay brought her concerns to law enforcement was after Charles had died. She flew out to Arizona and she met with a detective. Kay and Larry told this detective that they were so worried about JJ and they asked if he saw what happened to his dad. Kay is asked if she tried to contact law enforcement again after the last FaceTime she had with JJ on August 10th. She says that she did contact police multiple times. The defense objects, stating that they did not have all of those meetings with law enforcement admitted to the court. The prosecution says that all of these meetings were reported. Judge Boyce overrules the objection. Kay continues to testify. She says that she heard Lori had left the state with JJ. Kay had no idea where they went. She's asked if JJ was ever physically with her in November of 2019. She says no. Now she's asked about how she became alerted to Lori Vallow's whereabouts. Kay says that on November 8th, 2019, she wakes up at 4.30 in the morning. Back when she had to clean out Charles's home in Houston alongside other family members, she had brought the printer to her house. On November 7th, 2019, she tried to set it up by plugging it into her computer, but it became too frustrating, so she gave up. But at 4.30, she has a strange feeling that she should try to work on it again. When she comes back to her computer, she noticed the icon for Charles's email. She wasn't sure how it had appeared on her computer, but she clicks on it and comes to the sign-in page. Since she had helped Charles with his business, she knew he had three favorite passwords. The first one she tried worked. Now she started sifting through emails, and one Amazon delivery email sticks out. The delivery address was for 575 Pioneer Road, apartment 175 in Rexburg, Idaho. The date of this email was after July 11th, the date that Charles was killed. Kay testifies that her first call was to Brandon Bordeaux because she was so shocked and she knew Lori was with her niece, his ex-wife, Melanie Paulowski. Next, Kay calls law enforcement. Now Kay logs into Charles's Amazon account. The browsing history included searches for a beach wedding dress, a bathing suit, men's large-size white linen top and pants, and Malachite wedding rings. The date associated with the most recent searches was October 2nd of 2019. By the time Kay is coming across this information, she had already heard about Chad Daybell's wife passing away on October 19th, 2019. Kay states that she believed Lori was the one searching for wedding rings on this Amazon account. Kay continues to be questioned, and she testifies that in January of 2020, she is aware that Rexburg police are searching for JJ. So she makes the flight to Rexburg to help. She had never heard of this town before, and by the time Kay and Larry had arrived, the media had caught wind of this case, so they talked about it with every outlet they could. She says that they appeared on talk shows and did what they could to raise awareness of the missing children. By this time, Kay was aware that Lori had married Chad Daybell. On June 9th, 2020, she was informed that her grandson's body had been found on Chad Daybell's property, buried in a shallow grave. With this, the prosecution concludes their questioning and it is now the defense's turn for cross-examination. John Thomas stands to conduct this. He starts off by asking, quote, 
So your son couldn't take care of JJ, right? And she responds, right. John continues, then he came to you as a foster parent. But Kay only responds with one word, caregiver. Which John replies, stating that a caregiver is basically a foster parent. But Kay says no, they were just a temporary replacement. John then asks if Kay kept JJ from July until February. She says yes, and then she is asked if during that time there was a conversation about the possible adoption of JJ. She says yes. And then John asks if Charles is her older brother. She says yes. John makes a statement, five years older? And again, she tells him yes. At this time, John says, quote, Tell me again, why is it that you didn't want to adopt JJ? Kay tells him that her and Larry really did want to adopt JJ, and they could have provided him a good home. But when speaking with Charles and Lori, their atmosphere was a lot more conducive to a baby. She explains that they knew Kanan would eventually need to attend special ed school, and that would be a problem living in Lake Charles, Louisiana. She continues with saying that while Charles was younger than her, he could also run circles around her. Quote, age in that regard doesn't matter. My husband Larry was 65 at this time. He has four and I have two, and we knew it was going to be a lot. Larry's brother was raising an autistic grandchild, and it was just the atmosphere we had to offer, like bringing him to the park or having friends over. Lori and Charles just seemed to be a better placement for him. John goes on to question Kay about a time when Lori came to Houston, just after Charles moved to Houston with JJ. Lori appears and she makes a scene. Kay says she was yelling at him and she's asking him why he took JJ to Texas. John asks, you recorded that conversation, right? And Kay says, yes. John responds with a quote, and that was a private conversation between Lori and her husband, right? Kay testifies saying yes, but she was in the next room. She also says that Lori's friend, Melanie Gibb, was there as well, and all of them could hear the conversation. John also asks Kay about the drive she would make from Lake Charles to Houston to help Charles watch JJ. He asks her if it took about six hours to drive. She responds with a short no. So he asks how long it did take then, and she tells him two and a half hours. John then repeats that Kay has stated she was concerned about JJ because Lori didn't want him anymore, and he asks why she thought that. Kay says, quote, because when a mother leaves her child, she was gone 58 days and Charles kept count. That whole time, she didn't try to make contact at all. Now John asks if Kay was with Charles that entire 58 days. She says no, but she was there for probably 30 of those days. John then says, quote, so you don't have specific knowledge of if Lori contacted JJ on the other days. And Kay says no. There's silence for a moment, and then Kay speaks up again, asking if she can say something else that she just thought of. The defense tells her no. She can only answer the questions they ask her. So John moves on. He says that something about what she said about November 8th was interesting to him. Quote, so you woke up at 4.30 in the morning. Tell me more about that. What was that experience like? Kay testifies that it was a weird experience because she never woke up at 4.30 a.m. She felt that it was divine intervention because of what she found. John says, quote, what do you mean by divine intervention? And Kay's response is, just by God's hand. The defense has no further questions, and Kay is led off the witness stand. The prosecution's second witness is now brought to the stand. This is Brandon Bordeaux. He is the ex-husband of Lori's niece, now known as Melanie Pelosky. Brandon lives in the Mesa, Arizona area, and he testifies that he was once married to Melanie Bordeaux, now Pelosky, and they shared four kids together. At this time, those four kids are 13, 9, 7, and 6. The couple was married for over a decade. They married in the year 2000. Brandon testifies that he had met his wife's family. Melanie's mom, Lori's older sister, had passed away when she was young. 
On the four-part series I did on this case over on True Crime Exposed, we discuss in detail the death of Melanie's mom and her relationship with Lori. Anyway, Brandon testifies that Melanie's grandparents are Barry and Janice Cox. These are Lori's parents. Brandon had also met Adam Cox, Lori Vallow, and Alex Cox. They would be his aunt and uncle-in-laws. Brandon says that while they all lived in Arizona, the family spent most holidays together. Before they married, Melanie had even lived with her Aunt Lori and Uncle Charles in Arizona. Brandon is then asked if he would have recognized Lori, to which he responds, yes. He is asked to point her out and describe an item of her clothing. He says that she is sitting there at the second table and she has glasses on. The court recognizes that the defendant has been identified. Brandon continues his testimony, stating that he knew Lori and her children well. He says that his oldest son, Braxton, was very close with JJ. At this point, he begins to cry, saying that JJ looked up to Braxton. He says that JJ was not super interactive due to his diagnosed autism, but he loved hanging out with Brandon and Melanie's kids. He says that JJ would become really fascinated with specific things. And one of those things was traveling. JJ had all sorts of suitcases that he loved and he kept them everywhere. Brandon is then asked about a special religious connection he had to Tylee. He goes on to explain that he is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Many people think of this religion as Mormon. Although having family members and friends who attend this church myself, I believe they no longer associate themselves with the term Mormon. So this is why he says the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Brandon says that in his church, someone has the option to be baptized at eight years old if they choose to do so. Brandon was asked by Charles and Lori to perform the baptism. I believe this is because Charles was not a member of the church, or if he did go, he did not hold the priesthood required to perform a baptism. Brandon agreed to do this. He is then asked if his wife and Lori both attended this church at the same time. He says yes. Then he goes on to explain that Melanie looked at Lori more as a mother figure than an aunt. Melanie always wanted to be like Lori. He also says that he always got along really well with Charles. The two of them both had a passion for sales and business, so they connected well on that. Brandon testifies that during the years Lori and Charles lived in Arizona, the families would meet up at least once a month. They often spent holidays together, and the last holiday they did spend together was Christmas of 2018. Brandon is asked by the prosecution if that was a typical holiday interaction. He says, quote, no, it was definitely different at this point. He goes on to explain that when you get really close with people, you let your guard down and you're relaxed and comfortable. The families were at that stage. During this time, they had felt like they knew everything about each other. But this Christmas, things felt different. Melanie Gibb, Lori's friend, was also there with her family. No one felt close anymore. The body language was off, and the conversations felt distant. Brandon is asked if his wife's religious activity had increased around this time. He says, quote, yes, a little bit before, actually. He goes on to explain that when Brandon and Melanie were first married, she did not have a strong interest in the church. He was more involved than she was, and he would really push her to attend church. But by the end of 2018, Melanie became very passionate about the church and different ideas beyond the church. He says she was going to meetings that she was calling firesides. He explains that some meetings in his church are called firesides. These are meetings done outside of regular church hours where members can gather for food or snacks while they're taught a religious lesson. The meetings Melanie attended that she was calling firesides actually had nothing to do with the church. They weren't being held by the church or any church leaders. Brandon is asked if the defendant, Lori Vallow, attended these meetings with Melanie. He says yes. He is then asked if Charles attended, and he replies that he isn't aware of any time that he did. 
Then he's asked if he ever attended, but he says that Melanie made it clear he was not invited and that it was her thing and her thing alone. Brandon is then asked if he knows who went to these meetings. At this time, Lori leans to each of her lawyers and she is whispering to them. Then they object, stating that Brandon doesn't have the information about who was there, so he can't testify to it. The judge agrees and sustained the defense's objection. The prosecution continues by asking Brandon if Melanie attended those meetings without him. Brandon says yes, but the defense objects again, claiming hearsay. The judge agrees and notes to the prosecution and jury that this portion of questioning will be struck from the record. The prosecution continues. Brandon testifies that at this point, his wife was saying that she needed to go to the temple every day. This is an unusual thing for members of his church. But Melanie became so consumed that she would even go daily during their family trips, like the one they took to Disneyland. Brandon said it was overwhelming. Melanie became fixated on the idea that the world was ending. Brandon and her argued over her spending $2,000 on end time storage. To him, it all seemed so extreme. The prosecution asks Brandon if this extremism was affecting the relationship between the Vallos and the Bordeaux. He says yes. By 2019, Melanie had received a phone call from Lori claiming that Charles was cheating on her. This was complicated for Brandon because he wasn't aware of that phone call when it happened. He was confused when Melanie told him about it. Melanie wanted to take sides, and Brandon did the best he could. In the spring of 2019, Brandon did not see Lori much, but he did see Charles. They would meet up a couple times a week to have Braxton and JJ play together. As the summer came, Brandon had started to try and create distance between him and Charles because his wife was pushing him to stop contact. So Brandon agrees to head to Utah with his wife where they would stay with her family for a bit. Around this time, Brandon's grandpa passes away. Melanie told him that she would not come to the funeral and this obviously created a disagreement. Brandon said he was trying to process this argument and it built up to an event and he left, taking some time to be alone. He is asked by the prosecution if this led to accusations about him. He says that after spending time alone, he came back and he apologized for his reaction. Melanie agreed that they could work things out, but at the same time, she was accusing him of hacking her computer. He says he knows nothing about hacking and it was an illogical accusation. Now the conversation escalated. Melanie's father gets involved and she starts accusing Brandon of being a homosexual. Brandon was shocked, but also not shocked at the same time because Charles had warned Brandon that Melanie had been saying these things about him. It all came to an end when Melanie left. On June 26, 2019, which is just one day after Brandon's grandpa had passed away, he texts Lori and Charles saying that he was so frustrated with his wife. In the following days, Brandon works through some things with the help of his dad, he attends a counseling session, and then he decides to call Charles. Brandon starts getting choked up as he testifies. He says that during this phone call, he told Charles he was sorry for keeping the distance at Melanie's request. This was the last time Brandon would ever talk to Charles, as he died just a couple weeks later. He never had contact with Lori, Tylee, or JJ again. Following these events, Brandon and Melanie divorced. The process started in July after Brandon returns from his grandpa's funeral. They obtained a mediator and were working things out still as the fall came around. By the end of September slash beginning of October in 2019, Brandon is living at a rental property. In their divorce, they decided to sell their house, and Brandon had moved Melanie into her own rental property. Before selling the house, Melanie had agreed that Brandon could come over to her house and help put the kids to bed each night. However, she starts refusing to let him inside, saying that she was scared of him. He needed to get his own house so that his kids could come over, so he quickly moves into his own rental property at the very end of September. 
The prosecution asks Brandon what happened in the beginning of October. He responds saying that on October 2nd, 2019, he was shot at in the driveway of his rental home. The defense objects, stating that the situation he is about to testify to is not relevant to the case on hand. The prosecution asks if they can approach the bench and Judge Boyce agrees. Following their private conversation, the judge calls for a mid-afternoon break. Most of us watching were on edge. Was there a possibility that Brandon would not be allowed to testify about his attack on October 2nd? It seemed like a huge piece of this puzzle. I sat in the courtroom, nervously awaiting the trial to be back in session. Upon returning to the courtroom, Judge Boyce orders that he will hear arguments on this issue outside of the presence of the jury. He had let them continue their afternoon break while the prosecution and defense presented their arguments. The prosecution states that the events which took place on October 2nd, 2019 were relevant to this case as a part of the common scheme and plan. They say that the defendant conspired with multiple individuals to commit murder. She is charged specifically with three murders, but there is digital evidence and testimony showing that she conspired to remove any obstacle in her way. Financial benefits from Brandon's death would have gone to Melanie, and she had committed to help aid Lori and Chad's religious group for the future. This event was a part of the common scheme and plan. The prosecution then says that the other piece of the puzzle is just the simple logic that the shooting is what got law enforcement involved, and it was a big part of bringing more attention to the children being missing and the start of a search for them. The defense says that this argument seems like a stretch at best about a common scheme and plan. They say that Brandon can come back to testify later after the prosecution has presented some of the evidence they are referring to and once other witnesses have testified. He can come back once there is more of a foundation for their reasoning behind presenting this testimony. The prosecution jumps in to say it's a chicken or an egg thing, what comes first? Judge Boyce says that in the preliminary trial, he ruled that this testimony from Brandon about what is alleged to have taken place would be allowed as evidence. He says that he has considered whether the order of things matter. He cautions the state that he will admit the evidence for now, but this is based on the fact that they say evidence will be presented backing the situation up as being a part of the common scheme or plan. If that evidence does not come, then he will instruct the jury to strike this testimony from the record. Judge Boyce then looks to Brandon and cautions him that he is only to testify about what he knows from his personal experience. He will be subjected to objection if he goes outside of that. The jury is now led back into the courtroom. Brandon testifies that on the morning of October 2nd, 2019, Brandon got his kids ready in the morning before dropping them off at their mom's house. He then goes to the gym for a workout before returning home. He had just moved into this rental property days earlier, and he lived in the second house in on the road. As he turned the corner driving towards his home, he noticed a Jeep parked directly in front of his driveway. He continued driving forward towards the Jeep, and he watched the window of the Jeep roll down. He then sees a gun with what appeared to be a silencer on it. Then his car window shatters. Brandon was driving a Tesla, and as he slammed on his brakes, his phone flies forward. He speeds back up as the Jeep drives off. He follows the Jeep and is able to grab his phone. He calls 911. Brandon testifies that he recognized this Jeep. When he meets with a detective that day, he tells them what he thought was going on. He said that Charles Vallow had bought his stepdaughter, Tylee Ryan, a Jeep that looked exactly like the one parked in front of his driveway that morning. So he gives the VIN to the officer. He explains the Jeep as a grayish green color with no tire on the back. 
He also explains that he had the VIN number because Charles had given it to him once. Brandon was an insurance agent and obtained insurance on the Jeep for Charles. By the time he is shot at, he was no longer the insurance agent, as this was after Charles had died. In fact, this was also after the last time Tylee had been seen alive, but no one knew this yet. Brandon is then asked if he looked for information on the internet following this event. He says yes, because he started to have clues about who he thought did it, and he became concerned. So Brandon says he looked back to previous stuff that had happened, quote, there were a bunch of emails Charles had sent me about the groups they were meeting with. So Brandon started looking through these emails and found Chad Daybell's name. Then Brandon searches Chad's name on the internet and finds an obituary for Tammy Daybell. Quote, this made me really nervous because of Charles. I reported it to law enforcement and told them in my gut something was wrong. The prosecution then asks Brandon if he became aware around this time that Tylee and JJ were missing. He says yes, stating that he became really proactive about gathering information, and he found out that no one had heard from Tylee or JJ. The prosecution then asks for the state exhibit number five. It's a birth certificate for Tylee, and they ask to admit it as evidence. Brandon reads the birth certificate out loud. Then he is asked if he recognizes state exhibit number six. He says yes, it's a picture of Tylee. He is asked if he recognizes her and if this was an accurate representation of her. He says yes. The prosecution asks for the photo to be admitted as evidence, but the defense stands to ask Brandon if this photo had popped up on his own Instagram. He says it did, but they say, well, you didn't take the photo, did you? and he says no. The defense then says, so you don't know if it's been photoshopped and you were not there when the photograph was taken. He answers no to both questions. With this, the defense objects because the photo is not an original and they don't know who took it. The prosecution argues that they do not need to know that information for admittability because Brandon recognizes Tylee and he said it is an accurate representation of her. Judge Boyce agrees with the prosecution and it is admitted into evidence. The picture is then shown on a screen to the jury and the rest of the courtroom. The prosecution then asks Brandon where he was when he was informed that the kids' bodies had been found. He says that he was in the garage of his parents' home. The woman who was typing the court transcript did not hear him well, so she says, what was that last part? I didn't hear you. You were at your parents' house where? Now Brandon takes a long pause. I see a lot of others who are watching the trial look around to each other. They're confused. Brandon had paused because he couldn't get the words out through his tears. He's clearly crying when he repeats that he was in his parents' garage. This information came to Brandon the day before his wedding. So the next day, he has his wedding, and the following day, he travels up to Rexburg, Idaho, in June of 2020. Upon arrival, he meets with Larry and Kay Woodcock. Brandon is asked if law enforcement asked him to do anything. He says, quote, Yes, they asked if I could identify JJ. Brandon was shown pictures of JJ's body in order to identify him. He's visibly crying as his testimony comes to an end. The prosecution has no further questions. Now John Thomas stands to conduct the cross-examination on behalf of the defense. This cross-examination is short, but it was also a shock. John asked Brandon if him and his wife were having issues in 2018. Brandon responds to John telling him to define issues. John says, well, you got a divorce. But Brandon says that they did, but in 2018, he would not say there were issues yet. So John says, and at your in-laws house in Utah, did your wife accuse you of being a homosexual? Brandon says, yes. He's then asked where these accusations came from. Brandon says, 
she said God told her. And then John Thomas says, So it has nothing to do with a video your friend posted of you in a pink ponytail dancing around? Brandon says that Melanie's accusations were so illogical that he kept asking her where they were coming from. She eventually says that this video is where they stemmed from. John then asks where this pink ponytail video was taken. The prosecution objects, saying that they understand this is cross-examination, but this is getting ridiculous. Judge Boyce overrules the objection, allowing the defense to continue their questioning. Brandon says that the video was taken in Georgia. The defense moves on to question Brandon about the Jeep. And when he was following this Jeep, did he get a license plate number? Brandon says that he did not. John asks how far away from the Jeep Brandon was. Brandon's response, pretty far. The defense then asks if Brandon is positive that this shot came from the Jeep and if it was possible that the shot came from somewhere else. Brandon says that he is positive and that it was not possible that the shot came from anywhere else. John then asks Brandon why law enforcement didn't ask someone closer to JJ to identify him. Why didn't they ask Larry or Kay Woodcock? Brandon says he feels as though he was just as close with JJ as Larry and Kay were. He also says that they had been asked, but it was too much for them. The defense has no further questions. As Brandon stands to leave the courtroom, the prosecution says that Brandon lives out of state, so they ask that he be released from his subpoena. The judge agrees and Brandon is free to go. Following Brandon's testimony, court concludes for the day. On day two, Detective Hermosillo of the Rexburg Police Department is set to be called as a witness. I was unable to attend day two, but I followed the updates closely, and I listened to the audio. Day two seems like a big day. Detective Hermosillo was the only witness for the entire day. In fact, he was still being cross-examined at the beginning of day three. I will be attending the live stream on day three, day four, and day five at the Madison County Courthouse in Rexburg, Idaho. I will still recap day two of trial with what has been reported and the audio I hear. Detective Hermosillo was present when JJ and Tylee's bodies were found. Pictures of their bodies were shared on day two. It was a tough day. Kay Woodcock chose not to attend for the majority of Detective Hermosillo's testimony, and Larry Woodcock was said to be bent over crying through most of the day. We will cover Detective Hermosillo's testimony in Episode 3. Again, it will not be an easy one to hear. My heart is with Tammy's family and Larry and Kay Woodcock through this trial, as well as everyone else grieving the loss of Tylee, JJ, and Tammy. This podcast was produced by True Crime Exposed and is hosted by me, Kayla Waters. Please leave us a five-star written review as we are a new podcast and help spread the word 